Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. There are so many trophies in sports named after legendary or at least very recognizable names to that specific sport. There's the Lombardi Trophy in football, the Larry O'Brien Trophy in basketball, in baseball, There's the Cy Young Award and the Hank Aaron Award. But I think the sport with the most is the NHL, starting with Lord Stanley's Cup. Then there's the Vezina Trophy, the Norris Trophy, and the Art Ross Trophy, to name a few. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we are going to explore the career of the man whose name adorns the trophy for the NHL's leading scorer, Ross. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join once again. Hey, upfront and honest with you to start. Today's show is with a super guest, Eric Zweig. He is a terrific hockey writer and historian. He has written several books about hockey and we are going to discuss the topic of one of his books, the legendary hockey figure Art Ross, the same Art Ross whose family donated the trophy that bears his name and is awarded the NHL's leading scorer every year. Now, the warning. (laughs) We really go deep here, and this podcast, well, it's a little long. We trace Art's roots, his early days as a hockey player, into his days as a player in the NHL, and then his days in management. And along the way, we will also discuss the many innovations he brought to the game or was a catalyst in bringing it to the game, such as the shape of the puck, the shape of the goal, the forward pass, and so much more. And like I said, Eric is just terrific and he knows so much about hockey. His book, Art Ross, The Hockey Legend Who Built the Bruins is a thorough history of one of hockey's most legendary figures. Now, before we jump in, please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook and follow on X at SportsFHeroes. Please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a like or a nice review wherever you listen or on YouTube where you can also watch today's podcast. As always, thank you for your support, and I truly hope you are enjoying Sports Forgotten Heroes. Okay, enough rambling. 
let's get straight into today's show with my guest, Eric Zwan. Eric, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join. Well, thanks for having me. So, Art Ross, what an interesting topic. Um, you know, a lot of people know about the Art Ross Trophy, but they don't know a whole lot about Art Ross. So let's start here. What motivated you to author this book that we're going to talk a little bit about, Art Ross, the hockey legend who built the Bruins? Yeah, well, first of all, we should tell people that this book is a few years old now, though it's still out there if you'd like to buy a copy. Um, And yeah, it's funny. The fact that I thought this is a name that everybody knows, even if they don't really know why they know it. It's just the name on a trophy, but it's a hockey name. People people know the name Art Ross. And I thought if if he had done what he did in a career in baseball, for example, he'd be he'd be Branch Rickey or he'd be he'd be John McGraw and there'd be Casey Stengel. There'd be books and books about him. Um even in Canada where, you know, there's hockey books by the dozen every season at, at Christmas, no one had done this before. Um and I just I mean, I, I am a real nerd is the only way to really put it for for the early history of, of hockey. I mean the the early days of the NHL and even before that. Like really from the start of when there's the Stanley Cup and the competition starts to become something we can trace all the way back to. So I, I was you know, for me, it was really Art Ross's playing career that was the draw. I was sort of nervous about taking on his NHL career. But mm-hmm. it was I just I had the idea for a while. Um and and I, I kind of just eventually I, I did a little bit of preliminary work and then kind of jumped in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I again I think it's a terrific topic. Uh a while back I did one on Lord Stanley. So uh, you know, we'll add this to the collection. Who are sure. these uh trophies named after? <laughs> um when you were doing your research about art, what topic or what thing did you find that most surprised you about Art Ross? Well, I don't know if this is sort of the answer that you're looking for, but what I what I found most fascinating, and it was funny that I found it fairly early in the research, was the the sort of twisted history of his family tree. I mean, <laughs> I knew I knew his hockey career as a player, though not as well as I would come to know it. I knew the stories of him as a longtime coach and general manager and and, and vice president of the Bruins. But I didn't know anything about the personal story. And, you know, that wasn't necessarily what I went into the book doing. But it was it was fascinating to me how I kind of came across all these things. And I'm trying to remember because it was a while. Like, I started the research in 2005. So that's pushing 20 years. And the book came out in 2015. And it wasn't, you know, 10 years of, of mining coal. But it was 10 years of pretty hard work. Um, but very early in the game, like I, I had in those days, I worked for the company that did back when the NHL guide and record book existed as a physical book, as opposed to just a <laughs> website. I had worked for that company for a while and, and, and knew some hockey people. And, uh, one of the people who gave me a bit of a push in the early, early going was Milt Dunnell, who was the longtime, uh, sports editor for the Toronto star and, and lived to be over a hundred years old. Um, and so it was like, Hey, this is a guy who actually knew him. Though it turned out he didn't actually really know him. He, he'd sort of seen him and covered him. But he sent me some early clippings that he had. 
And I also, because I, I'm friendly with some of the guys in the uh, archives at the Hockey Hall of Fame, I had asked them, is there any, have you ever had any contact with any family members? And they put me in touch with one of Art Ross's granddaughters, who, who really, we, we, we hit it off. But she said, you know, the one you want to talk to is my brother, Art Ross III, who is the family historian. And so once we got going there, you know, it was, I mean, like I have zillions of emails back and forth between me and, and Art. And, and, you know, we would get on some pretty weird tangents. But one of the things, because he had written about the family, and so he knew, he knew that there were holes in the family tree. That's not a good analogy. But, uh, um, and like, one of the first things I came across, because this was right around the time the, uh, the Canadian censuses had first been put online. And in the 1901 census, I see that Art Ross is living in Montreal with the family of a man who, whose name isn't Ross. Like, clearly, you know, this is not his biological father. What's the story? And, and Art knew a little bit about this, and he was like, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You know, we don't really know what happened. And we did eventually, after the book came out many years later, found out really exactly what had happened. But basically, his first family, the first marriage, you know, after years, I mean, they had 10 children and, and years and years and years of marriage, sort of fell apart. And, and Art Ross's mother fell in love, I guess, essentially with somebody who was her husband's boss, in a, in a way. They were all, all these families were working for the Hudson Bay Company, the fur trappers that, you know, almost settled Canada, really. Um, and so there was all sorts of sort of family intrigue. And, 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 and so she ended up divorcing, which took some doing in those days. And as I said, I didn't know this yet, even when the book came yeah. out. We were yeah, still you get into that. You get into into all that real early in the book, you know, and you do cover how you know the divorce and and some of the steps that needed to take place in order for that to happen. Um, and and you do you talk about his upbringing and and what struck me is how these inconsequential events can change the outcome, destiny, or the path that someone takes. And for Art, it was his mother getting remarried to Peter McKenzie. Um, had she not met him, Art might have never moved to Montreal and become the hockey legend he was. Explain that to us. Yeah, it's mother it, it, remarrying, and she remarried Mackenzie, and who he was, and why they moved to Montreal. Yeah, so they they Art Ross basically was born and grew up in in wilderness. I mean, he is very near what is now Sudbury, Ontario, which is a a big northern Ontario town, but still, you know, it is it is mining and rocks and trees, and and I he, when he grew up there, he was born. So this is part of it. We'll go to. Like, one of the, the very early things I discovered was that nobody was really sure what year he was born in. Hockey records had always said 1886, but it turns out it was probably 1885. And, you know, the one year is not a big deal, but when you're trying to write somebody's biography, it's nice to know <laughs> when they were born. So I mean, I'm going to interrupt for a second. It's so funny because I've done so many of these podcasts about, you know, these forgotten heroes born so long ago. And that is 
not as unusual as you might think. No, well, I know so many authors. Family, like my yeah. grandparents' birthdays yeah. are sort of unknown. So, you know, it was, wasn't was as big a deal in those days. But it, for, for a biographer, it was nice to be able to go, this is what I think. Um, so when he was born in 1885, the town of Sudbury had just been incorporated. The, the Canadian Pacific Railway was going through on its way west across Canada. And, and so there was now starting to be civilization and white people. But basically, when he was born there, it was just, uh, you know, we call them First Nations in Canada. Uh, I guess you call them Native Americans. Um, mm -hmm. They were just what we used to call Indians. I mean, and, and so he, but it's interesting that his mother, his mother had come from, a, even though she was many generations in the Hudson Bay Company as well, she'd come from a, a more built up area even though she was in northern Quebec, a fairly prominent family, she seemed to really stress education. So even when they were in these places in the middle of nowhere, they brought in tutors. She taught them. They, they all spoke English and French. They spoke several of the native languages in the region. And they were tutored by, by you know, like students from Queen's University who would be brought up for the summer, sort of, when they were off school to teach them. So it's interesting that, I mean, even if he had never come to Montreal and not become Art Ross, the hockey person, I mean, two of his brothers became doctors. Um, several, I mean, it was a family of 10, as I said, and several of them became quite prominent in their fields, which is quite remarkable given the, the way they grew up. But it's mm -hmm. true, like, if he had never come to Montreal, if they had stayed in Sudbury, I mean, eventually he might have come to play hockey, but Montreal was such a center of, of Canadian culture and you know it was the biggest city and the most important city in the camp in canada at the time mm -hmm. and, and the birthplace of most canadian sports if not the birthplace at least the the incubation place where they they sort of took off uh -huh. um, so he he came to montreal at a time where just at the dawn of like you, you couldn't yet make a living in sports but you could play it and get fame and and get famous and there was sort of a setup where there were leagues and, and systems and farm systems. And mm. so, yeah, if he hadn't come to Montreal, and this might never happen, it still could have happened. I mean, there were mm. hockey players from, of his vintage from, from small towns all over the place. But, but, you know, there's nothing to indicate it would have happened if he hadn't come to Montreal. And so basically, his mother marries, who is essentially was his father's boss. He was a higher ranking official mm. in the Hudson Bay Company. And though he was from small places and had been in all these weird little wilderness places, he basically is at this point living and working out of the main office in, or one of the main offices. I think they had an office in Winnipeg as well in Montreal and, and married this woman with 10 children, several of whom were already old enough to be out on their own, but brought at least five of them to Montreal into this new house. He bought big house. He bought for the family. And he must've been a remarkable man. I mean, as, as far as like the family seemed very fond of him, the, the children from the second, you know, marriage. Uh -huh. um, and, and, you know, like Art Ross named some of his children have like middle names from that, that are, are Peter McKenzie's name. And, and so I, I think I, I find him to be a remarkable character who I don't know a whole lot about, uh -huh. but it really does. It changes Art Ross's life and in a sense changes the destiny of hockey. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And you said that um, this was an area where, you know, uh, Montreal was sort of an epicenter or an incubator for all sorts of sports, obviously hockey being one of them. And there was another legendary hockey name, family, another legendary hockey family 
that was developing around the same time as Art Ross, the Patrick family. What about his friendship with Lester and Frank Patrick, particularly Lester? They would pretty much be on each other's radar from their preteen years through the rest of their lives. How yeah, did they meet, like and what was their relationship like? Well, it's funny. I mean, that Lester Patrick wrote about it, and it's in the biographies of Lester Patrick, that when their family, so their family was from, from a smaller communities in Quebec, the Patricks, and moved to Montreal. Lester Patrick's father ran what became a quite successful lumber company and so was established out of Montreal after being in the timber areas of, of more rural Quebec. And when they moved to Westmount, which is the most affluent suburb in Montreal, um, he talks about meeting, you know, it's funny because he, he, he definitely refers to him in the books about it as, you know, like a rich man's son. Like Art Ross had all the sports equipment, had all the things. And, and, and Lester considered him a rich man's son. I'm not sure if Art would have considered that. I mean, they weren't, they were, they weren't poor. But, you know, by Westmount standards, they, they certainly weren't in mansions and things. Like, they, he was a working guy at, at, the, at, a, at a fur trading company. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, somebody who built railroads. But anyway, so that's how they meet. They meet playing sports as teenagers, like basically about 10 or 12 years old in, in uh, Montreal. And, grow, and there's a lot of, like, Frank and Lester Patrick would influence hockey in a big way the way Art Ross did too. But there were lots of uh, Walter Smale, who's not an A people know anymore, Sprague and Odie Cleghorn, and my cat, who you haven't seen yet, but is pushing the screen from behind. He is named Odie for Odie Cleghorn. Um, <laughs> like, there were a lot of these guys in the neighborhood, though. Frank and, and Lester and Art Ross really would become the sort of movers and shakers, like not just great hockey players, but great hockey minds who, who moved the game forward. Um, again, Incubator, Montreal. You said that Art um, might have made it in the hockey in another way, shape, or form had he not gone to Montreal. But one thing you did write about is how great an athlete Art Ross was. And while he made hockey his profession, he was certainly involved in other sports throughout his career. But I thought maybe that rugby was actually his best sport. Just how good of an athlete was Art Ross? Yeah, he, he definitely thought, it's funny, in those days, like rugby, Canadian football, American football too, for that matter, you know, basically it comes from rugby. Sure. In the 1900s, like 1900, like the actual. And, and the Canadian Football League, if I understand correctly, was originally rugby. Well, but yeah, so was American football too, though maybe not by the time the NFL comes around. But that's like, I was going to say, like in those days, the terms kind of rugby, football, and rugby football are all used sort of together. Like in Canada and the United States, the game is changing from what is traditional rugby into ways that will become what we recognize as football. But if you saw the game they were playing, it would look more like rugby to us now. But people who played rugby then knew it was a changing game. But mm -hmm. that's sort of neither here nor there. Um, but the thing is, like in those days, you know, an athlete was an athlete, and seasons were short. I mean, even uh, just as a boy, like, they were, they're still just teenagers at this point, but even men who are playing these sports, I mean, nobody can make a living at it, for one. And nobody, I mean, none of, the, like, if you're an athlete, you play 
what the season dictates. You play hockey in the winter, you play baseball in the spring, you play football in the fall, you play lacrosse. Canada lacrosse was a big game in Canada in the summer. So most most good athletes were multi-sport athletes. Um, though most of the guys who became hockey stars probably would have considered hockey their best sport. And Art really thought it was, it was football. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, so hockey becomes professional in Canada. Hockey and lacrosse become professional in Canada long before football does. And, and rowing was another big sport that a lot of the athletes would play. Um, but once you became professional, which starts happening in 1906, 07, 08, once you became professional in one sport, you were considered professional. And yeah. some of the sports were more rigorous about this than others. So, and football was one who would, that remained strictly amateur for a long time. And so once he accepted money to play hockey, he could no longer play football. Hmm. He, he would still coach. He coached teams for quite a while in the, in the early 1900s. Hmm. He couldn't play. Um, this hmm. happened in a lot of, like a lot of guys who took money to play lacrosse, couldn't play football and couldn't play hockey because lacrosse had done it a few years earlier. So that's what really kind of funnels him into hockey. But as a young man, he 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 played everything. I mean, Frank Patrick talks about this in some of the things he wrote. But they all they uh, they all played football. They all played baseball. They all played lacrosse. They all they all rode. They all swam. They they were all athletes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And because, as I say, like you had to. I mean, it's how you stayed in shape for the for your sport was by playing the other sports all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but ha as to how good he was, I mean. Elmer Ferguson, who is the, the namesake of the award for sports writing in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Elmer Ferguson was a Montrealer, and he thought, like, he writes in the 40s when, when or towards the 50s, I guess, when, when Lionel Conacher is named Canada's athlete of the half century. And Lionel Conacher was another one of these guys who played everything and was great mm -hmm. at everything. And he was named Canada's athlete of the half century in 1950 in a pretty overwhelming vote. But, but Elmer Ferguson thought, thought Pat, or, uh, Art Ross was a better athlete than Conacher was. So hmm, interesting. I mean, he boxed and wrestled too, like all as did Conacher. They they all they just did everything and were good at it. Well, he was great at hockey. <laughs> um, when he played hockey, especially in the early going, how did the game differ? I mean, he played a position called cover point. Explain that to us. Well, the thing about hockey in this era and in, in the 1900s till till 1910, 11, 12, seven men aside, um, for one thing. So the, the I mean, cover point, point and cover point, except that they played sort of one in front of each other instead of side by side, aren't very different from what we think of as defensemen now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was their job was to defend. Um, and and some like Ross and Patrick were among the early defensemen to start rushing the puck and, and leading the offense. But the big so there's seven men aside, the extra player being a rover who sort of plays between the forwards and the the defense. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the the key difference in this point is there's no forward passing in hockey. Right. Um, so I mean, if you shoot if you shoot the puck ahead, it's kind of like punting in football. You are giving up possession. For, for field position, essentially. Mm -hmm. If you're trapped in your end, you can fire it down. There's no icing. But you give up possession, and you have to sort of fight to get it back once the other team has, has fielded the puck. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, guys had to be skaters. That was the only way to really advance the puck was stick handling and skating. So the game would look very different. But it's interesting. Like, it sounds like it would be slower, and it would have to be slower. Also... Mm -hmm. There was very little substitution. I mean, the rules only allowed you to substitute a player if 
there was an injury. And even at that point, the other team might elect to take a player off rather than give you a fresh player on the ice. Yeah, you didn't have as many people, as many players on the bench yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. as you do in today's game. No, but that was, that, it's funny, like, which comes first, right? Like, you, you didn't need a lot of substitutes because you weren't allowed to substitute. It mm-hmm. wasn't that they, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we only have 10 guys. This is our team. It was like, we don't need more than 10 guys. Our seven guys go all the time unless something terrible happens. Right. Um, so, so obviously the game is slower and played at a more, I mean, it's a little bit, except soccer's not. I mean, it's like soccer in that, you know, you, you patrol your area more, you know, forwards do most of the offense, defense does most of the defense. Um, the rover could sort of do both, but generally a team would pick, like, our rover will be a defensive guy or our rover will be an offensive guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like the rules said you could only do one of them. But it was basically because you're, you're, you're playing 60 minutes. You can't just go. It's not a 45-second shift and get off and get rested. So you can't go crazy hard. You have to pace yourself. Um, but, you know, like even though it would sound like the game would be slower and it had to be like everything you read about hockey in those days, is it's the fastest, most exciting <laughs> game there is. So it's like... It would look different to us now, but at the time, people weren't going, man, this is slow. I mean, they were. it was exciting. Well, in reading your book, I mean, he was not, Art Ross was not a slow player. In fact, not only was he not slow, the impression I got is he might have been the best hockey player during his era, especially in the early going. Just how good was he? And and if he wasn't the best, he sure as heck was neck and neck with whomever we're going to yeah, call him. I mean, the, the only one who probably was better is Cyclone Taylor. Um, they both basically start at the same time and are rivals. And Taylor was probably a little bit better. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's impossible to know. You know, none of us have seen them. Um, hmm. And there are other guys too, like, you know, like Joe Malone is a name from the same time period, though he's a little bit later, but people know him because he played into the NHL and scored the 44 goals in 20 games the first year. And, you know, like, clearly he's a gifted offensive player. A guy like Tommy Phillips in Kenora or uh, uh, Frank McGee in Ottawa. I mean, those were the two sort of biggest stars of when, when, of when, when, when Art Ross is starting. Um, but he lasts longer than they do. Yeah, it's hard. Like he, if he wasn't the best player in the game, he's certainly in the top two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, like he is a defenseman who's tough, who can skate, who can score, who can be back to defend in his own end. I mean, like guys like like Cyclone Taylor could do that. Lester Patrick could do that. But and that's why these guys are in the Hall of Fame, and people still know their names today. <laughs> Um, they were they were that good, and it's like I know you're going to ask me, who does he compare with? Yeah, yeah, it, might as well. Who, if you were to look at today's game, or when I say today, recent memory, who, if we wanted to say that guy is sort of like Art Ross, who would you think of? I think, and I've thought about this a lot, and it's impossible to just nail down one guy. Sure, but I think Chris Pronger would be a good uh-huh. one. Uh, Scott Stevens, especially early in his career when he was still scoring a lot of goals and points. I mean, he's probably not Bobby Orr, uh, and he's probably not as flashy as Paul Coffey, but he's probably a better defenseman than Paul Coffey. Mm. Maybe not than Orr. Um, 
like I think I think if you'd asked Art Ross and he was honest, because he'd often say like he thought the best defenseman he'd seen by the time he was done was was Eddie Shore and and Hod Stewart. Mm-hmm. Hod Stewart is a guy who was just his career ended because he died early when Ross was starting. But I mean, I think I mean I think I even say this at the back of the book that I think that was like because Ross was always compared with Hod Stewart. Like he sort of took over on the Montreal Wanderers from Hod Stewart and sort of probably became a bigger, bigger and better star. Mm-hmm. But I think when he talks about Hod Stewart and, and Eddie Shore, he's just like, and because they were all awesome compared to him, I think that's his way of going, you know, I'm as good as anybody. And I still think, you know, like he's probably more, more comparable to, which is again, guys we haven't seen, but uh, Doug Harvey than he mm-hmm. Bobby Orr. But I mean, he's that kind of guy. Like it's just the kind of defenseman who can do everything and control the pace of the game, which is what they always said about Doug Harvey. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody thought a defenseman could do what Bobby Orr did. I mean, Art Ross and Lester Patrick and a few other guys rushed with the puck, but you know they weren't going to lead leagues in scoring. Right. So, but I think Pronger is a decent one, except that you know Pronger, though he was often considered the best one or two defensemen in the game, wasn't considered one of the you know, like the best players, because I think we put more premium on the the, the big scorers now. Mm-hmm. I think Pronger and Stevens are a good match. I mean, playing right now, I mean, God, maybe, you know, like a guy like Cam McCarr or Quinn Hughes is having such a big year. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, it's hard. It's impossible to say, really. And the other thing is that, I mean, in a book I did for kids a few years ago, I kind of lumped him, like it was a book that had Hall of Famers and, you know, paired old guys with new guys. And I sort of paired him with with the Rob Blake and and uh, Doug Wilson, but that's more because they went on to careers in management. I think as a player, Ross was a better regarded as a player, even though these guys are well. Wilson never won the Norris, but Blake did. Like you know, again, they were they were among the best defensemen in the game, but not the best players in the game. And Ross really was a great player. I mean, I know that you and the stuff you sent me, you. You mentioned Mark Messier. That's probably a decent fit, except there, it's hard to compare a uh, forward to a defenseman. Well, I was talking more in the leadership yeah. Type thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he played, when Art played, there wasn't an NHL. There was no National Hockey League. It, you know, like we're familiar with today. Um, so, where did he play professionally? And how is the professional game organized again? Very different than from the way the game is today, especially in the early going. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, it depends on how you think about it. I mean, yes, it is very different, but in a sense, I mean, there was very early in Art Ross's career, there was the National Hockey Association, which will become the NHL. And it evolved from a series of leagues. Like the NHL can trace its roots back to basically the Amateur Hockey Association of Canada, which was the first sort of big professional league. Though, again, they, they weren't big like we think of because, because basically, you know, hockey could only be played in cold winter temperatures. <laughs> you could only travel by train. Leagues had to be smaller, shorter, and more regionalized. So, and some league has to be better than the others. But in, in a sense, there's leagues, maybe not in every province in Canada, but in every region in Canada. And and even though the, the leagues that will become the NHA and the NHL are always considered the best, 
The leagues in Manitoba produced Stanley Cup champions. The leagues in the Maritimes produced at least challengers for the Stanley Cup champions. Soon there'll be leagues in Alberta and British Columbia that are, are, are challenging and sometimes winning the Stanley Cup. So even though there were never more than six or seven and sometimes as few as three and four uh, teams in the NHA and the NHL, there were other leagues of comparable, I mean, but again, like if there were 10 or 12 top level professional teams, that was a lot. But remember, the NHL only had six teams for 25 years. Right. Um, so, I mean, when Lester, actually, Art Ross gets his first sort of senior hockey, because there's no professional yet, um, playing in 1904-05 in the Canadian Amateur Hockey League, which is one of the leagues on the stepping stone towards the NHL. He, he makes it big when he goes out to Brandon, Manitoba. The Manitoba Hockey League was a real rival to the leagues in, in Ontario and Quebec. Mm-hmm. And he played in Brandon and then was loaned to the Kenora Thistles and helped them win the Stanley Cup in 1907. Um, so, but but the, again, like if there had been the ability to fly across the country, and like these would have been one bigger league. Mm-hmm. It's just the times. It's not so much that, God, we can't have more than four or five teams. It's like, <laughs> we can't have more than four or five teams. There's no way to do it. Um, so when it takes a week to get across the country on a train, you know, I mean, that's like when the, when we get to the Stanley Cup soon, um, when it becomes an Eastern versus Western thing, it's like played in the East one year, the West the next year, because it takes six or seven days to get across. You can't be going that between every couple of games. Um, so, I mean, that's why it's different, though, as I say, like, it's, if you think about it in the big picture, it's not as different as it seems, but it, yeah, it's a very different set. <laughs> okay. Now, now you touched upon this early on, that um, it was not the easiest thing to make a living being a professional athlete and just playing a sport, you know, athletes back then in football and baseball and hockey and basketball, what have you, did not make the millions upon millions of dollars that they do today. And, you know, hockey, like the other sports back then, you had to have an off-season job. What did Art do um, when he wasn't on the ice when he wasn't participating in sports what kind of jobs did he hold down okay well we'll go back a little bit first so yes i mean hockey in canada they start paying people to play in american cities around 1899 1900 but it's you know it's looked down upon in canada and it becomes controversial as players go back and forth across the border it's not until the 1906-07 season that Canadian leagues begin to allow professionals to even play. And it's a big issue. It's a real moral quandary in sports. It's more in Canada than it is in the States. But even in the States, you know, there was a real amateur professional divide. But even when they start paying guys. I mean, the other thing about hockey is the season's always short. Like, it's really basically December, January, February, March. Mm -hmm. 10 or 12 games, like a game or two a week over a three or, you know, three-month period. Um, So... Seasons are as short as eight games and never longer than 20 in the time when he's playing. Um, so if you're making $1,000, $2,000 for three months of the season, I mean, that's what guys are making. I mean, like a $2,000 hockey salary is comparable to what a, a doctor might make at the time. And you're only doing it for three months. But still, it's not a, it's not a career. Like you, you're only going to be able to do this for a few years. So everybody has to have an established career. I mean, even if you didn't need the job to make money at the time, 
You need a career because basically your hockey career is going to be over at 30 and you're going to have 40 more years to, to live and make a life. So they're all trying to establish themselves in some fields. And it's interesting, Ross actually first, uh, when he, he left school, I guess, after high school, I don't think he ever went to university, um, he, he, he went into banking in Montreal. And it was actually the banks that how, like the, the bank, he was transferred from his merchant's bank in Montreal to the branch in Brandon. And that was how he was sort of recruited out there. It's like, we can't pay you, but we can get you a better job than what you've got. So for a couple of years, he still worked in banking. His last year in Brandon, he actually bought into a flour milling company. Milling, that was the big sort of industry in Brandon. But when he comes back to Montreal in 1908 and sort of establishes himself now as a, a pro hockey player and somebody, you know, a man who needs a livelihood, he opens a sporting goods store. Um, and it becomes quite like, I mean, because he has the name, like it's, a, it's, it's amazing more of them didn't do that. I mean, I remember reading, I think it was Joe Garziola talking about how baseball players like, you know, like you like to have a hardware store because the produce doesn't go bad, you know, like wheels and screws and hammers and stuff. You know, if it doesn't sell this season, it'll sell next season. You yep. don't have to throw yep. it all out. Um, but essentially, like, so he's, he's kind of doing the same thing. He's selling skates and, and equipment and, and not just hockey equipment, but like all sports. And his company is, you know, not surprisingly, really. I mean, it becomes a big company like why wouldn't you buy your sporting goods from from the best hockey player in the country um and then he has a mail order business so he's able to send stuff right across the country um he does that for he opens the store in montreal in 1908 and and runs it for 10 or 12 years he, and he moved it from location to location yeah, location what? yeah i mean all sort of in downtown montreal but i mean i don't really know why it moved quite as often as it did but it did um, and eventually he, he sort of specializes in automotive stuff, motorcycle stuff. Like he, he has becomes has a Harley Davidson distribution in mm -hmm. like the sports it move, morphs kind of from general sporting goods to, to motorcycle racing, which, which as you know, from the book, he, he was, he was a big motorcycle racer for yes. a while. Um, I'm going to read this next question. Um, uh, right, 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 right from my sheet of questions. Um, <laughs> in its early days, the Stanley Cup was not awarded to a team after a series of playoff wins. And again, I, I talk about this um, with Kevin Shea when I do uh, uh, when I did my uh, podcast about Lord Stanley. Teams challenged teams for the cup. Hockey, like we were just talking about, was not organized and run the way it is today. They were amateur leagues, professional leagues, and getting everyone on the same page to form a true professional league took many years, decades, and you explained part of the reason why. And we could probably discuss this topic for hours as well. But in short, can you tell us about the mechanics of this? It was not an easy time in the 1800s and the first few decades of the 1900s, there were a lot of issues regarding amateurism, which again, you talk about earlier, professionalism, and in the end, it certainly had a profound impact on the career path that Art took. Yeah, well, so as when hockey is first organized, and, and you know, there's all sorts of debate about where and how and when, but basically 1875 in Montreal is sort of thought of the beginning of what we would now, like the, the roots of modern hockey kind of date from there. 
Um, and yes, it was an amateur game, which becomes an issue. But it isn't at first. I mean, that's just what you expect. But so in 1892, Lord Stanley announces he's going to donate this championship trophy. Because that year, the way the league, the, the, the main, the American Amateur Hockey Association of Canada was set up in an odd sort of challenge system instead of a schedule system the way we know it now. So in that year, Ottawa, which is where Lord Stanley as Governor General of Canada is based, and so he's a fan of the Ottawa team. Ottawa's team wins every single game they play that year, but loses the last one, and so loses the Stanley Cup. Like, sorry, that's the last challenge. You aren't the champion, even though we all know you were the best team by far this year. So he decides, this is silly, we need a trophy <laughs> with a sort of recognized set of how it will be awarded. And because there's really, in the East, they don't really know much about the other leagues, so they just assume that that, that Amateur Hockey Association of Canada is the best league in the country, and, and it is, but not far and above everybody else. So, but the league is set up. At the time, they know there was also the Ontario Hockey Association. And so the, the, the Stanley Cup is donated, and two men are put in charge of running how it will be awarded. And they decide there'll be this sort of challenge at the end of the year between the champions of this league and the champions of that league, which would have been sort of like you'd say. Mm -hmm. Like, you win, we play a series, and off you go. It's kind of like, you know, the World Series for so many years when there was no playoffs. Like, the champions mm -hmm. meet, and the champion is the champion. Right. Um, but because the leagues are small, and, and more and more of them start to spring up in different provinces and different parts of the country, and now that there's a, like a recognized national championship trophy, other people want it. Um, so it can't belong to one league because, as I said, the, the, the leagues never have more than four, five, six teams in it. It's not a national championship trophy if just one league can have it. So the setup was always that the champions of other leagues could challenge the current champion. Mm. I mean, it's not, even though it seems so different, it's like boxing or mixed martial arts. You know, it's like there's no real league, there's just champions from all over who, who, win their way up and challenge the champion. Um, and because the seasons were short and because you needed natural ice, there were no artificial ice rinks in Canada. Mm -hmm. yet. Um, and, and there were starting to be a lot of teams who wanted to play for this. They, they just, the, the trustees would try and schedule it whenever they could. So a Stanley Cup series could take place before the season starts. They could interrupt the middle, like in the middle of the season, you'd kind of take time out from your schedule to host <laughs> the championship. I mean, the best circumstances were when it happened at the end of the year, but it wasn't always practical. Um, so that's how it all sort of happened in weird and different ways. And because, again, you're trying to fit them in around before the schedule starts, in the middle of the schedule. So they, they might be as short as just a one-game winner-take-all. They were often a best two of three, but they were often two-game total goals, which seems it's funny. When I was a kid, like the hockey leagues I played in played a lot of two-game total goal playoffs. But it seems so foreign to what goes on now. Even though I, I'm pretty sure, like the MLS, the uh, MLS does that. Yeah, the MLS. I don't know if they still do, but they did for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other things that really struck me about uh, Art's career is the impression you get is he played on a different team <laughs> every year, moving all over the place. Every year was like. A different team each season. A different team was that the norm? Why did Art do this? Well, it's funny, you know. I, 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 you know, I saw that in your questions, and I thought, 
I mean, because like he's generally most associated with the Montreal Wanderers, and he did play with them for the longest period of time in, in two or three different sort of segments, though. Um, but again, it's part of. I mean, guys weren't making a ton of money, and and they weren't. It's funny, not not, not so much like baseball, like they weren't tied to the team in the same way like there was no reserve clause so that you know once you're with this team you're there forever um they were all and it's funny because i know like when like marvin miller would talk about this like when free agency was really announced in baseball there was this talk of like well everyone will just be a free agent every year but the players realized that wasn't good because there'd be too many players out there oh my um, gosh you yeah exactly like if everyone's a free agent every year you don't have to throw zillions of dollars because we can have, you know, access to anybody. Yes. So, I mean, but hockey was a little bit like that. So, I mean, he did jump around because he was among the best players and in demand. Um, And, and part of it also, I mean, the reason it looks like there's so many teams is because some years he would just, and other guys would too, and eventually rules get passed to make this harder to do. But, you know, he's playing for the Montreal Wanderers and the team from Pembroke, Ontario says, Hey, we've got a big game with our rivals in Renfrew tomorrow night. You know, the Wanderers aren't playing. Let's see if we can lure Art Ross to Pembroke for this game. Or yeah, very similar to the early days of professional football here in the States. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just sort of Wild West. There weren't rules yet. So that's mm. why it seems like, because generally speaking, he, he does play with the Wanderers longer than anybody else. But yeah, but while with the Wanderers, he plays games with, with Pembroke. He plays games with Cobalt. He he does, you know, have the couple of years. But that's before he got established, though, where he's out west in, in Brandon and Kenora. So it does look like he moved around more than he did, but he didn't move around. Though it's funny, like in the book, I know that I talk about, like, he did have a reputation for, like, chasing the money, which is <laughs> what people really didn't like about professional sports. It was like, it's not like, generally speaking, before they were pros, you know, a team would organize the best players they could get from their community, and it really represented their community. Now guys are going where the money is. And Ross definitely went where the money was. Sure. And then, like, there's the, you know, like, there are some 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 good shots the papers were taking at him and other guys who would just jump from team to team to team. But he, <laughs> he, he mostly was a wanderer, except for when the wanderers occasionally turned their back on him, So, which well, I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing about Art that really struck me is his aptitude for the game. Um, he devised so much of the strategy of defense first. In fact, the neutral zone trap or the kitty bar the door strategy uh, can all be attributed to Ross. Talk about his hockey competence. Well, that's, you know, it's hard to know where that comes from. Like him. And the Patricks, and it's got to be, you know, a coincidence, really, that these people who grew up, you know, within blocks of each other did so much that changed the game. Um, I mean, maybe they just saw it on the ice, this works, this doesn't work. I mean, the kitty bar the door thing, it's funny, like, the stories over the years always attributed to him, and it's specifically in the playoffs when he's playing with Ottawa against the Wanderers, and they, they devised this yeah, it is probably like the neutral zone trap or the left wing lock. But it's unclear. Like, it's funny, like, guys like Elmer Ferguson and, and the big sports writers at that era, when Ross is coaching and managing in the NHL, 
sort of throw it back at him. But at the time, it was very clearly attributed to the coach of the Ottawa team at the time, who was Alf Smith, who's actually another Hall of Famer, but not a name people know. I mean, I think Ross carried it out because he was the best player on the team and the best defenseman. And so, but I, I'm not sure, like, because, and then the years of the Bruins in the NHL, they're almost always among the top scoring teams. I mean, they have some years where they're, they're just not good, but like <laughs> in, the, in the 20s, 30s, and into the 40s, when they are a, a real force in the NHL, I mean, they have guys winning scoring titles on a fairly regular basis. Shore is a, a huge scoring defenseman. They also have great defense and great goalies. But, you know, I, I think the whole, like, throwing defensive hockey at his feet is, is a bit misleading. And it's funny that I know, like, there's the, one of the big rivalries in the NHL was that Conn Smythe and, and Art Ross really hated each other. And I think that's very true. And there's the one kind of famous incident where, where the, the Leafs come to Boston and Ross, or Smythe is really annoyed with Ross and, and, and puts an ad in the Boston paper saying, you know, they're the champions, but come see a real team, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs are down. And he's mad that they're the champions, but they're playing defensive hockey. But they lead the league in scoring that year. I mean, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think the defensive thing, I mean, I'm sure as a defenseman, he valued defensive hockey, but I think he, he saw the whole big picture. <laughs> and a lot of that came during his years with the Wanderers. You know, uh, tell us, again, we always hear about the original six, but mm -hmm. before the original six, there were other teams in the National Hockey League, the Wanderers, uh, the New York Americans, um, Pittsburgh. I mean, there, was, there were other teams in the NHL before the original six. Tell us a little bit about uh, Art's time with the Wanderers and just how good that team was. Well, the Wanderers, the Wanderers existed for a fairly short and stormy period in hockey history, but were, in the book, I make the comparison of like the rivalry between the Wanderers and Ottawa in the, from about 1904 to 1910-11, is like it was with Colorado and Detroit in the NHL in the late mm -hmm. 90s. Like, like the two great teams that hate each other and really go at it hard. Um, but that's, and so like, these so this is basically during the era of the NHA and beforehand. So there, there. I mean, it's funny that like Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, Canadians, and Wanderers, Quebec, they are the teams that sort of survive the NHA era and come into the NHL. The Wanderers very quickly fall on hard times and only don't even survive the whole first season. And that's Ross's like he only played three games in the NHL in the last season of his playing career after a 10-year, 12-year career, really, as a pro. Um, so, so but really, so once the Wanderers drop out, there's really, there's Toronto, Montreal Canadiens, and Ottawa left. And Ottawa, you know, Ottawa survives into the 30s. They're not the same team, even though the Senators now like to fly the Stanley Cup banners from the original Ottawa teams, and why shouldn't they? Sure. Um, but so they're really like there were three and four and five teams when the NHL was formed because Quebec had not played the first year and comes back later. The Wanderers fall out. Then there's eventually there's Hamilton and then Pittsburgh and, and Boston is the first American team in 24 and then Pittsburgh and the New York Americans. So by the 20s and Ross is now a management in, in Boston, there were there were up to 10 teams in the NHL by as late as uh, when they started falling off. Basically, during the Depression, like there's 10 teams after the 26-27 season, and they sort of just start falling away as the Depression 
until we get to the the six that become known as the original six because they they lasted for the longest period of time and sort of the game the modern sort of NHL becomes established in that time period. But yeah, there had been plenty of teams before that. Um, so how does a guy who played for all these different teams in Eastern Canada, Western Canada, you know, Montreal, Ottawa, out in Manitoba, you know, how does a guy, oh, and he's got all of this business in Canada wind up in Boston in charge of the Boston Bruins. What led him to Beantown? Yeah, well, the Boston Boston wanted him. I mean, like he had, by at this point, by the early 20s, I mean, his NHL career ends in, in the 17-18 season when the Wanderers leave the league, and he's now sort of too old to play in that time period. Uh, he could have lasted maybe a year or two longer if he chose to. Um, but he also, so he he stays in hockey as a referee in the NHL. He he has been coaching football, as I say, off and on during all this time, and coaches coaches um, into into the early twenties in in Canadian football and what will become the Canadian Football League. Um, and in tw- the twenty two twenty three season, he's offered the chance to coach the, the NHL team in Hamilton. It doesn't go super well, um, and so he only does that for the one year. Um, but he's back, he's in the 23-24 season, he's back to being a referee, he's still a known sports personality in Canada, he is, he's racing his motorcycles now, and he's, 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 he's more of a, a builder in sports now, like, he is organizing sports events, and, and, like, during the war, the First World War, he did a lot of, sort of, you know, motorcycle racing for charity, and, and raise money for the Red Cross, and things like that, so, I mean, he's a known organizer. He has been running his own business, though. By now, the sporting goods has morphed into uh, the Harley-Davidson thing, and soon he's going to actually leave that and sell insurance for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is recommended, basically. When Boston, there's a guy in Montreal, Thomas Dugan, Duggan, I've never really known how you pronounce it, <laughs> uh, who, who is sort of tasked with the NHL of selling franchises to the United States now that they're sort of ready to expand into the United States. And Boston, Boston and New York were supposed to come in together, but there were various reasons why New York was delayed. So Boston becomes the first American-based team. And Charles Adams is he's a sportsman from Boston and is kind of recruited, uh, attracted to the ownership of the Boston team. And he he's sort of is asking, like, you know, who, who am I going to get to head up this team? And people in Montreal are telling him, Art Ross is the guy you want. Um, the, the things Adams talks about, he wants a tough team. He wants this. He'd seen uh, Ross working as a referee during the 1924 Stanley Cup series and was apparently impressed by how he handled himself. So he and Ross doesn't seem gung ho on it. Like he, Adams has to really woo him. Um, there's a few management things. Like he's not happy with the, the Duggan guy who's and 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 he's glad to know he won't be part of the team in Boston. And I think doesn't really agree to go down there until he realizes Duggan won't really be involved. But that was it. Like he was sort of a known hockey commodity. This is a guy who could build an expansion team. There hadn't really been expansion teams to this point. And it did take him a few years. Yeah. But, it, it, but, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy going at first in Boston. In fact, they were, they weren't that good a team. So talk about that, about those first couple of years, how, how difficult it was um, how 
bad the yeah. Bruins well, were. And what did he do to turn the team around? Well, yeah, it's funny because, I mean, he obviously built the same team, the first team that went 6-24 and that first year. Um, like he had, he had, he had, he had, you know, brought some of the people he knew from coaching in Hamilton. He also coached the the senior amateur team in Hamilton. So that was like a lot of the players he brought to Boston were were Ontario Hockey Association guys he had coached and coached against. Um, but yeah, it didn't work well the first year. I mean, he talks about we had three teams that year. He said one coming, one going, and one you know one in the wings. Um, so it was tough. They didn't do well. Um, but it doesn't look like he was ever under pressure, like, ah, this guy wasn't the right guy. Uh, he, he, he apparently works very tirelessly. So Boston had a, a long kind of hockey tradition already, but local amateurs. Um, and they weren't really convinced, like, a Canadian coming in, bringing these Canadian professionals was the best way to go. So mm-hmm. he did a lot of you know, going out to events and talking and schmoozing and telling stories and, and selling Boston on professional hockey. Um, but it really took a couple of years. Like the 24-25 team is the first team, and they're terrible. They're a little better than next year. But then after the 26 Stanley Cup, the big thing, so the, the Frank and Lester Patrick, who had left Montreal many years before and ran big leagues, rivals to the NHL out in Western Canada, uh, have come to the conclusion that now that the, the NHL is expanding into the United States and they're adding Boston and New York and Pittsburgh and another New York team, Detroit and Chicago are coming, they can't compete in places like Edmonton and Calgary and Saskatoon <laughs> and even Vancouver. Um, so the Patricks decide, and it's interesting that they you know, may or may not have actually had the right to do this. They are going to sell their players en masse to to the NHL to ex, to to kind of build up the the new teams the NHL is planning to add <clears throat> and and Frank Patrick and Art Ross sort of convince Charles Adams to bankroll this and the NHL eventually goes eh, we can't have one team calling the shots so the NHL steps in and it gets a little I mean it took a long time to try and explain it in the book so I'm not even going to try now but basically the NHL steps in Adams still puts up most of the money and does get to keep the players he wants. But but all these Western players come to stack the teams in New York, the new the Rangers in New York, the, the who are going to become the Red Wings and the Blackhawks in Chicago. But Boston gets many of the guys they want, and particularly Eddie Shore, who I'm not sure how much they had their eye on Shore as like because Shore hasn't really proven himself yet. Oh, he very, will. Oh, he very will. Boston. He he is the Bobby Orr of his day, and you know he he didn't turn the team around single handedly. But before Shore is there, they're not that good. And the, the twenty or twelve years Shore is there, they are a power in the NHL. Sure, that's really the guy. I mean, there's lots of other people too, but if you point at one guy, it's him. Um, was Art a well liked person? <laughs> um. Well, no. I mean, even in the Boston media, I mean, he he was uh, respected in Boston, and people knew he was gruff and tough. But you know, he was our he was basically our asshole, right? Like he's he's like you know, you'd hate him if he was somebody else. But I think all the NHL original guys. I think Paul Pythe was a jerk. 
uh, uh, Jack Adams is a horrible human being. They're all horrible human beings. Uh, Harold Ballard. Uh, yeah, well, that comes later. But there's well, a long, there's a long tradition of bastards out to you know do what's best for them, not necessarily the league. And it's funny. Like I mean, I didn't know Art Ross. He died when I was a year old. But I have I have met and befriended his grandchildren who who loved him as a grandfather. Sure. And, and and what a lovely grandfather he was. And I'm sure Con Smythe was lovely to his family in many ways too. But they're all they're all <laughs> horrible people doing what's best for them. But that's my opinion of all the NHL early guys. Well, he finally won a couple of cups, a few cups in Boston. What were his years like with Boston, both on a personal and professional level? If I understand correctly, he made a lot of sacrifices. He didn't go home to Montreal all that often. No, well, he, in the first few years in Boston, his family is still in Montreal. But they they all, he moved, like his kids go to school in Montreal, and even into high school. But by the, by the 30s, the family is very established in Montreal. I mean, the Rosses now are, are American. Like, they don't consider themselves. They know their family, their grandfather comes from Montreal, and even their grandmother comes from Montreal. But they're, they're Americans, and they consider themselves American. And, and, you know, well, they should. I have cousins who are the same. Like, my aunt married an American, and my cousins are first-generation Americans, but consider themselves American. Sure. Um, but he, so, I mean, yeah, he, he did. And for the first couple of years, he still had his now insurance business in Montreal. But very soon, like, he was given a pretty good deal in Boston. He had part ownership in the team. So he's, he's making good money, so he, he doesn't have to work outside of, of sports anymore. Um, but, yeah, so he, so I, I think very quickly he puts down roots in Boston. And they're fairly, you know, they're not rich, but they're not hurting either. So I think by the, by the 30s, when the team, so the team wins the Stanley Cup by 1929, which is only their fifth season in the league. So he built fairly well. And from that point on, with a couple of years where they, they, they just have a hard time, that they're basically a power for the rest of the time he's running the team. Um, so I think it, it all worked out okay for him and, and for, for Boston too. Mm-hmm. And he does, you know, he eventually, he becomes an American citizen. Uh, it's probably a part of the whole birthday thing is, is finicky there because like his documents, his American documents all say 1886, but but it's like so. Like the story sort of comes out even in his time. Like it's possible he didn't know. He might not have been cheating, or he might have wanted to make himself a year younger for whatever reason. But when when he hires Frank Patrick to become the coach in Boston in the 30s, one of the times like Art Ross generally in the early years was the coach and GM, but sometimes would step away from the coaching and hire somebody else. Um, so one of the people he hires in the late 30s is Frank Patrick, who writes a, a, a series of columns about his life in the Boston papers and talks about, you know, when we were kids, Art was a year older than I am, and now he's a year younger than I am. How did this happen? Um, so that was one of my, like, I pointed that to, like, to Art Ross the third, my Art Ross. Like, look, you know, I knew the kids who were older and younger than me than I, when I'm a school kid. Like, you knew who was a grade ahead of you, who was a grade behind you who you knew because they were friends of your older brother or your younger brother. It's like, there's no way Frank Patrick got this wrong, you know, 20 years later. You know, it's like something, something's wonky with your grandfather's birthday. And he was slow to come around to it. But we, we actually, another, another distance, because as I said, Ross was from a family of 10. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of 
distant relatives who we came across on on ancestry.com and stuff and there was this one gentleman whose roots are very french canadian from from the early part of the family in, in ross's mother's family and he was the one who was the real sort of super genealogy sleuth. Mm -hmm. And though we never found, because I don't think there is a birth certificate because they were born in such oddball places. Mm -hmm. But it seemed very clear that he was born in 1885, not 1886. But it really sort of comes an issue. It doesn't become an issue. No one cares except me. But you know, it's in the papers in Boston in the late 30s after he's taken out his citizenship and now is attributing 1886 as his birth year in Frankfurt. He lost some years over the years. Um, earlier, we talked about how his aptitude for the game. Um, and we talked about, uh, you know, just uh, how smart he was when he came to hockey. He was also a very innovative person. Um, he redesigned the puck. He redesigned the goal. He instituted the, the a, a huge change in the rules of the game to include the forward pass. Talk about Art's vision for the game, his innovations, his impact on the game that still influence the game we watch today. Well, it's interesting, like, I don't know what comes first. Like, in his sporting goods business, he was... You know, he, he had his own line of skates. He had his own line of equipment. He, he So, I mean, he played and he knew what, I guess, was comfortable and what worked for him. Um, and again, like he, he and the Patricks, and again, I think it's just got to be a coincidence. But they did all grow up together. Because the, the Patricks are out west now, changing the game like crazy. Like, I, I think they, they did more of the big picture things. Ross then later would help introduce them into the NHL as opposed to the Pacific Coast League, where the Patricks had, had kind of championed them. But the puck in the nets, like the puck, funny, like a puck hasn't changed a heck of a lot. It's a hunk of rubber. Um, and it's, again, this one was tricky to figure out, too, because clearly in 1918-19, the, the NHL adopts an Art Ross puck. Mm. And then, then I guess they went back to the old Spalding pucks, and it's not till much later that Ross patents his, his, his new design. Basically, he he, he rounds like bevels is what they call it. bevels the edges. I mean, you look at a puck, you don't think of the red, but if you look at it closely, like, because it, it used to be just a yeah, solid. It doesn't have a hard edge around it. It's it was just the solid rubber edge. And it was, you know, people are getting, I mean, you can still get cut when you get hit by a puck if you get hit the wrong way. But I think they were much more dangerous and they rolled oddly and uncontrollably. So, he, he he did something that changed the composition of the rubber somewhat, but mostly bevels the edges so it slides and rolls more controllably. Um, the other the interesting thing is the is the goal net. Um, yeah, because it's funny like they've changed away from his design uh, later, and it's more like they were in the early days. But the early goal nets um, were were more square, and the netting was quite tight, and pucks could bounce in and out quickly, and often. You know, the, the goal judges couldn't be sure if it had gone in or not. So he invents the sort of rounded bottom of the net. You know, like they, they yeah. aren't that way anymore because Mark Howe got badly injured sliding onto the. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Um, but that was like, so he, 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 so it would catch the puck in the net better because, and, and he also just sort of 
will drape the netting a little less tight. I mean, it doesn't seem like a huge difference, but he got a patent for it. Um, and, and it just says from, from 1927 to 1984, that was what goal nets looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they changed them now and they made them a little smaller and, and they're straighter again. They are much more like they were in the early days. But that was a, that was a big change when he, he patented the new goal net. Sure. And in you terms know, of, of yeah, yeah, and, sorry, the, the, the rules and stuff, like the Patrick's developed a lot of the stuff in the PCHL. They, the PCHA, they started forward passing first. And they, they, they were the first to draw blue lines on the rink. They allowed forward passing between the blue lines. And eventually in the PCHA and then the Western Canada Hockey League, they expanded forward passing across all the zones, which the NHL didn't. They, they still had it, and they didn't adopt it in the NHL until the second season of 1918-19. They painted the blue lines on and had the forward passing in the middle. The Patricks had also, in 1916-17, so that's a season before the NHL, they were the first league to allow goalies to fall to the ice to make saves. Goalies had to stand. Even though other players could go down and block shots and, and play the puck any way they wanted, goalies had to remain standing on their feet. And it's often said that that uh, Clint Benedict in uh, Ottawa, who who did sort of you know learn how to like make it look like an accident, like he was they called him Praying Benny because he spent so much time on his knees. Um, and it's often said that like he's the reason they changed the rule. But the Patricks had already changed it in the West, and Art Ross had had adopted it in a in a youth hockey league he he organized in montreal and really in the first season of the nhl was saying we should do this like nobody else has these restrictions on them everybody else can play the game whatever is best for their position why can't the goalies and so the nhl shortly after the start, first season started allowed the goalies to fall to the ice and that's an innovation that ross really got behind that isn't often credited to him mm-hmm. it's more the the blue one so he was and again as i said the patricks had already done this but Ross was, was on the NHL uh, competition committee and so had a lot of – and so would be Frank Pat, Lester Patrick when he got into the league. But he was pushing, like, we should expand the forward passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, first it was, like, from the central zone, the neutral zone, to the defensive zone and the neutral zone, and finally in the 29-30 season, everywhere on the ice. And Ross – funny, this is something we haven't really talked about. Ross wasn't a big one for practice. Like, he was a natural athlete and assumed people would keep in good shape like he had always done. And if you knew the game and understood it, you'd know how to play. When the NHL went to forward passing in all the zones, he really drilled his team on how we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And they were far and away the most skilled at it that first year in 29-30. And, and run rough shot through the league that year. It's still the best winning percentage in NHL history for the team mm-hmm. that Boston had that year. Well, they end up losing the Stanley Cup to Montreal. Um, but so he, he definitely, you know, I mean, that's a major innovation in the way hockey yeah. is played, the way the past. And he actually, in the early days, would have been advocating for, for what we call now the stretch passes. Like, he liked the idea of, so, that, so that's another thing. So he was involved with this, too. Um, eventually when there's forward passing in every zone, but you can't pass the puck across the blue line. Mm-hmm. So if you have, this is what they first actually used the term power play for. If you had all five of your guys, like the defenseman right up to the blue line and the forwards uh-huh. in there, 
It was hard for the defensive team to get out of their own zone because they couldn't pass the puck across the blue line. They could only carry it across the blue line. Right. So the compromise, rather than passing it all the way up to the other blue line, is, and Frank Boucher is generally uh, credited with this, one of your, your Rangers, um, was to put the line, put a red line at center and allow them to cross, pass the puck across the blue line as long as it didn't cross the red line. And that was the league, so that was in 1943-44. And that's that's the the way it was for for sixty seventy years until they decided all right we want to open the game more and let them pass it all the way up to the other blue. But Ross had been they had experimented with that in in minor leagues that he helped to run, and even in a few NHL games he he would have been for that I think even back in the thirties. But the rest of the league wasn't ready for it. Sure, because it opened up the offense and and the game. In if I read correctly, in the early going, it was too defensive. There was not enough scoring. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like in the early early days of the NHL, there's tons of scoring, and then once it expands to like all ten teams in twenty six point seven, it's. I mean, it's the same way that what happened in 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 the the late nineties. I mean, it's like it becomes easier to teach teams to be defensive I think than to or coach them to be defensive than to to you know it's easier to control that to, to, mm -hmm. to, to calm down than to be creative mm -hmm. um, so yeah like in the late 20s the game becomes ridiculously defensive and it's real that's why they decide to open the forward passing into the offensive zone and even at that they, they kind of went overboard like there was no there was no offside at the blue line at first that mm -hmm. gets changed very quickly like you could just, you know, what we called as kids, goal suck. Oh, you know? you, just, you just camp yourself in front of the other goalie and wait for your team to bring the puck up to you. Yeah. Um, so they, they changed that rule very quickly in that season. But yeah, I mean, it, for a while in the late 20s, it was, you know, like two to one was your average score and people were kind of bored. <laughs> you know, one of the things I like doing, Eric, is finding these little nuggets in books that I read, and you brought up one that, yeah, frankly, I had no clue, that Pittsburgh might be considered the birthplace of professional hockey. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, did, I don't remember when I became aware of that. At some point in my Society for International Hockey Research colleagues, I mean, it, it sort of becomes well-known. Like, people who researched this era you know, older than me and longer before I did, uh, kind of knew this. But it's interesting. So, I mean, baseball becomes professional in the United States in the 1860s. You know, like the Cincinnati Reds in 1869 are the first pro team. And very soon after that, you know, baseball is becoming professional. And even though there isn't the NFL until the 1920s and college football was still the dominant game, people are playing, paying, you know, Americans are paying people to play football as soon as the as early as the 1890s but hockey in canada was very much sort of the british aristocratic even though it's interesting that you know like soccer teams were being paid in england soccer players in like the 1880s but somehow the british aristocratic system of sport for sport's sake was what you know canadians kind of clung to so canadians were slow to accept this but pittsburgh i guess you know an american city and americans still today are you know more more entrepreneurial than Canadians generally, I think. And in Pittsburgh in the 1890s, they had a big new hockey rink. Um, 
you know, if we're going to make this a spectator sport, we got to get the best players here and we're going to get them here by paying them money. So guys would come down from Canada. It's funny. There weren't a lot of Americans playing professionally yet, though there was a, a, a well-established amateur sport in the States. Um, and it is the States where they started paying them, but they're bringing Canadians down. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a strange thing because if you leave your amateur team in Canada to accept money, as I said earlier, like, you can't go back. You can't go back. And so, so they start fudging things. Like, really, they'll say, well, we aren't paying them to play hockey. We're bringing them down to work in this job. It just happens that the company sponsors the hockey team, and they're playing for the hockey team. Uh, everybody kind of knew that was a crock, but nobody wanted to call them out on it. So it's like, and the salaries are, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, yeah. you're getting $40 a month to. Like, Sprague Cleghorn talks about this when he first goes down to play professionally in New York in 1909, even though there's pro hockey in Canada then. Like, he he was, he was, I can't remember what he says, but he basically, like, he didn't even know what his job was. But, <laughs> but he, he was taking the salary and playing hockey on the side. Um, and then that's sort of what they did so that they could go home to Canada and play other things. And, and not everybody's going to lose their amateur status, though some of them do. And there's some famous stories from the 1890s of guys being banned from because they are known to be professionals. Um, so that's that's how it starts, and it starts in Pittsburgh. I mean, it has to start somewhere. Uh, I don't know if there was anything special in Pittsburgh except, as I said, they had this great big arena and wanted to fill it and, and make money. Everyone wanted to make money, so that's interesting. That's, interesting. And I, don't, I mean, it's like 1899, 1900, 1901. Very soon, there's a pro league in the states. Um, small places, like it's not in big cities, it's mm -hmm. the upper Michigan, Michigan's upper peninsula and then places like that. And then the Canadians, so, so then it becomes a big thing in Canada to pay guys, you know, like, as I said before, you're supposed to play in your community for your team. And it starts happening in the West, in, in Winnipeg and in Manitoba, like Winnipeg teams where the money is in Manitoba are like, hey, guy from Brandon, you know, come here, work for our company, and, you know, you have to play for our hockey team. So people, it's kind of an open secret that this is now happening. And people are, are, are really upset about it. Like in the East, where they're more stuffy and state about this, they think it's horrible. In the West, they're like, this is the new country. You guys are old behind the times. And, and, and eventually they just say, well, if we're going to do this, let's be open about it and pay these guys to play. But again, it takes a while. Like people are upset by that, and the salaries we're talking about are a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. But that's that's a decent wage for a working man for a year. Um, but yeah, it's it's insane how much people are tying themselves in knots. And and then the weird things like comparing. So these hockey guys are playing like ten game seasons and earning twelve hundred dollars, and the Americans are writing about. You know, Nap Lajoie for the Cleveland Indians and Ty Cobb are making, you know, 7500 bucks, but theirs is a 154-game season. Like, <laughs> these guys in Canada, if they were being paid at the same rate, they'd be making, like, $17,000. And people are like, oh, my God, $17,000. I mean, it's, it's, it's really – but it's the same as we are now, right? Except that now, you know, it's $700 million. Oh, please, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. Hey, um – I got two more questions I want to ask. I had several others, but I think we, uh, you know, yeah, we're getting long there. Um, but there's two two specific questions I want to ask. This is another one that 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 I'm going to read. Um, you know, we were talking about salaries and and Art. You know, he would hold out until he got 
the money he wanted to get. So, you know, he was such an integral uh, part of the formation of professional hockey. He was very much involved with the disbanding of several leagues and the formation of the NHL. These are very long and involved stories. However, how important a figure was Ross when it came to all these the all of these leagues? I mean, I guess everyone wanted Art Ross. And if he wasn't a figure in your league, your league wasn't really a premier league. After all, fans wanted to see the best. Yeah, that's true. And I think he he talks but, about one last thing, one last thing. Through all of this, he fought for players' rights. But in the end, he fought for management rights. Yeah, yeah, that was a hard one to explain, but Eddie Shore is exactly the same way. Um, but I don't really... So, yes, as a player, he he wants... I mean, he talks about this. Like, in 19... The first NHL or NHA sort of player strike occurs in 1910 when the league is trying to impose a salary cap. The first season, 1909-10, they'd been throwing money around like crazy to attract the best players and build up this brand new league. And then the next season, when they've kind of crushed their rivals, the owners are like, well, we don't need to spend that kind of money anymore. And they they they, they impose. So guys had apparently made as much as $5,000. Like Cyclone Taylor is said to have made $5,000 that 1909-10 season. The next year, they want to cap the salaries at 5000 per team. Per team, not per player. Team, team. Not per player, per team. And so this is, you know, like teams of eight, nine, ten guys. So that's basically, I mean, you don't have to pay them that way, but it's basically $500, which is a tenth of what the top guy was making the year before. And, and Art Ross and several guys are like, no. You know, <laughs> Ross talks about, like Ross always talks about, I don't need this. I got a, a, a sporting goods business, though. It'd be interesting to know how prominent the business would be if he's not Art Ross, the hockey star. He's just Art Ross, the salesman. Um, but he's like, every year, it's like, I don't need this. I, I, I'm ready to walk away. If you don't meet my price, I'm not coming. Um, and the prices do come down. But he's still, he's always arguing. He's saying like, you know, you guys kind of made us accept these professional I would rather be an amateur. I'd rather still be playing football. But now that I'm a professional, show me the money. You know, like, like this is this is what I have to do now. Um, and yeah, so every, almost every year he's holding out, and and in later years he's organizing other players not to sign and trying to sign them to contracts and rivalries. And it almost gets it gets him banned for life, though it's shortened to about a two week suspension. But so as a player, for sure, he is always. We are the guys people are coming to see. Pay us what we're worth. But man, very shortly after he's in ownership in Boston, he, he's a bastard. He's holding he's down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Shore's the same. Like Eddie Shore was holding out for big money all the time. And when he becomes the owner in Springfield, he is like notorious as the, the worst owner in the history of professional sports. And he's cheap and he's weird and he has his bizarre theories. So it's not just Ross, but I don't, I don't know what explains it. Is it just like the, well, now this is how I make my money now. Like the more money, the more money the team makes and doesn't pay out, the more money. I, I, I don't know. Like it's hard to justify how a guy who was so players rights is squeezing everybody all the time. I mean, it's really, <laughs> but he's not the only one. Right. right. <laughs> That's the only thing I can say in his gas. Yeah, he wasn't the only one, but man, it's, 
it'd be nice to see that he was would have been the guy who was like, hey, we're going to pay you what you're worth. Like, this is what we have. This is what you, you know, but no. Um, last question. It's pretty interesting, I think. Um, the Art Ross Trophy. It's handed out to the NHL's leader in points. He played defense, and the leader in points gets the Art Ross Trophy. How did that trophy come about, and what did Art think about it? Well, I mean, Art Ross, people, people always say like it was named after him, but it wasn't. I mean, he, he and his family donated that trophy to the NHL. Now, it's interesting. There already was a trophy for the most valuable player. There already was a trophy for the rookie of the year. There already was a trophy for the best goalie. There wasn't a trophy for the best defenseman. So, I mean, in theory, he could have, you know, like, All right, my trophy will be for the best defenseman. But by then, it's becoming a bit of a thing that the NHL doesn't have a trophy for its top score. Yeah, crazy. Conacher, yeah, Charlie Conacher had written about this over the years. You know, like he says, you know, until I won the scoring title, I didn't realize there was no trophy that went with it. And, you know, there's no bonus money for going to, for doing it either. And eventually, so in the 46-47 season, the NHL starts to officially slot bonus money for various things, one of them being $1,000 to the guy who wins the, the scoring title. But there's still no trophy. And, and it's interesting that, and I've never really understood why this trophy didn't happen, because in early as 1941, there's all sorts of talk about Art Ross is donating a trophy to the NHL that is going to go to the most valuable player in the league as voted on by his fellow players, as opposed to the Hart Trophy, which is voted by sports writers. Mm -hmm. And it's all, it seems to be accepted, and, and it's all in the papers that it's happening, but it never happens. Hmm. The sort of NHL line is that it's something to do with, with World War II, but I, mean, I don't understand how that would have any bearing on hmm. it. But the trophy doesn't happen. And then finally in 47-48, at the end of the, yeah, in, in 48, after the season is over, because the trophy is awarded kind of retroactively to the guy who won it at first, it's announced Art Ross and his sons are donating a trophy to the NHL for the scoring leader. Hmm. So, I mean, they clearly decided that was what it was. I mean, and it, it was, as I say, by now it's kind of an issue that there's no scoring trophy. Nobody's saying, why isn't there a best defenseman? Though they will soon enough. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think, I mean, he could have, he could have been for best defenseman if he chose, but it's like the league wanted and needed a scoring trophy. And he sort of stepped up and said, I will donate this and yeah. I'll put my name on it. It also has his son's names on it. If you see the actual like engraving on the trophy, it does mention all of them, though mm -hmm. it is called the Art Ross Trophy. And later in life, he talks about, I mean, Bruins had won the scoring titles in the thirties and forties before there was a trophy. And he hoped to live long enough to see a Bruin win it, and he didn't. Um, <laughs> but I, so I think that was probably disappointing to him. But I don't think he ever thought it odd that I was a defenseman and this is my trophy. He doesn't seem to. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> well, Eric, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time. As you can see, <laughs> I love this kind of stuff. You, the book that you wrote. There it is. Art Ross, the hockey legend who built the Bruins. Can people still get a hold of that? Yeah, it's probably not super easy. Um, but yeah, if you go to Amazon or something, you'll be able to find it. I mean, there there, are, there must be copies in the world that didn't sell that many, sadly. So, uh... <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This has been just fantastic, and I've learned so much. 
And again, thank you for uh, for spending some time with us. Well, thank you. I don't get to talk about these things as much as I'd like because, uh, yeah, it takes the fellow hockey wonk who wants these early stories. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Eric. Once again, a big thank you to my guest, Eric Zweig, for spending so much time with us discussing the great and legendary career of Art Ross. For more, you can always pick up a copy of his book, Art Ross, the hockey legend who built the Bruins. Yeah, despite what Eric says, it's still out there. You can always grab a copy on Amazon or order it from wherever you get your books. Hey, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.